Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron and this is the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three. Today I'm joined by Sean. Welcome back. It's nice to be here. It's been a little while since we've had Sean here. He was last here, I believe, for the Terminator Matrix Robocop episode. That is correct, yes. Okay. And today we have an interesting one. We are doing a career retrospective of director John Landis. So I do have my list and my red pen ready, but we are going to first focus on an event that defined the career of John Landis, which was the death of Vic Morrow. If you're not aware, John Landis was one of the four directors on Twilight Zone, the movie in 1983. While filming the movie, and this is a true story, this is not fiction, this is real, this really happened. While filming Twilight Zone, the movie, there is a sequence with actor Vic Morrow, who has gone back in time. He plays a bigot who goes back in time to World War II and to Vietnam to witness atrocities to sort of learn his lesson. And while they were filming the Vietnam sequence, Vic Morrow, who is the father of actress Jennifer Jason Lee, he was running across a pond in the Vietnam jungle, it was supposed to be, with two children under his arms, and a pyrotechnic, uh, an explosion, went off because he's supposed to be running from gunfire and explosions because it's supposed to be during the Vietnam War. And there was a helicopter in the scene, a pyrotechnic went off, and it took the tail rotor off of the helicopter, which caused it to crash to the ground directly into Vic Morrow and the two children, who were all killed instantly. I will try to be sensitive to what happened, but essentially, if you do seek out the footage, the helicopter blades go where Vic Morrow and the two kids are, and they basically vanish. They're just not there anymore. It was a tragic event. It rocked Hollywood. It stained director John Landis's career forever. There were criminal lawsuits. There were civil lawsuits. He was taken to court for manslaughter. Ultimately, the reason for that was apparently he was warned of the dangers. Now, he was acquitted, so we have to legally be careful on how we describe it because in the eyes of the law, it's not his fault. So we have to say that. But he apparently, according to witnesses, knew of the dangers, was warned of the dangers of having a helicopter so close to the pyrotechnics. But the extra layer that made it particularly problematic or eligible to be taken to criminal court is that the children were paid under the table. They weren't paid the way actors are normally paid. And this was to get around California labor laws. California has very strict laws on actors and especially child actors. You can only be there during certain hours, work for a certain amount of time. There's even limits to how much makeup you can put on them. And because it was under the table, because he was already breaking another law at the time that it happened... The blame was put on him. So sure, he didn't set off the pyrotechnics. He didn't fly the helicopter. But as the director, he was the one responsible for the situation. So he went to court. He was acquitted on manslaughter, but he did have to pay what I believe is an an unknown sum in the civil suits because the parents of the children did file civil suits. Long story short, this happened in 83. He went on to have a very long career, but this has always hung over his head. Obviously, we've had other times like The Crow or Vampire in Brooklyn where actors or stunt people die on set. In Twilight Zone, the movie, though, especially if you watch it now, that segment is in there. Not the accident. Of course, not the accident. But the Vic Morrow short story that is in Twilight Zone, because it's made of four short stories, is in there. And it's very strange to watch. I agree. It really is too bad. That's always going to be a black eye on his career. No question. And and, and rightfully so. I mean, it's, you know, it definitely is... Uh, tragic, but uh, there are things that that likely could have been done, not to the level of criminal intent or malice in my my opinion. Um, Well, that's why it was manslaughter, because he didn't do it on purpose, but it's still causing the death of someone else through his actions. Right. But how much pressure has to go on a studio then as well to putting the pressure on him to get the job done and stay on, on budget or under budget? So as mentioned, it is very weird watching that sequence because they took what they had. They had a lot of footage. They just moved the order around and were able to complete it. And so when the movie came out, it has, there's a segment in there by George Miller, who did all the Mad Max movies. There's a segment by Joe Dante, who did Gremlins, and then the John Landis one. It's weird watching it. Like, I get kind of nervous watching the sequence with Vic Morrow because, I don't know, like, I don't get nervous when I watch The Crow. Maybe it's because... Well, I guess the crow, even the crow is still somebody's fault. We know what happened with that. The non-union people used fake bullets or tried to make their own fake bullets and ended up causing the shooting death of Brandon Lee. Right. Well, maybe it's because the Vietnam part is still in there. Part of Vietnam is still in that segment of Twilight Zone, the movie. And you know that any moment around then is when he actually died because of that. It's so weird. I don't know. It makes me feel weird. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, uh, it, I think it for me, it's... It's creepy to watch and uncomfortable because of the way and the manner of which they died. 
Yeah. Like, I mean, just a, a helicopter blades just whipping you away out of existence instantaneously is just, it's not how somebody wants to go. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Sean, you have worked in film before. You have been on the creative side, but you've also worked in distribution, helping get movies onto shelves. What is your opinion, though, on either the entire film coming out or even just the inclusion of the Landis Vic Morrow sequence? Should that sequence have been cut from the movie? Was releasing it the way they did the right thing? I think they did the right thing by Vic Morrow, but people that are very sensitive to that sort of thing, perhaps mm-hmm. not. They may look at it as an injustice. I think a lot of actors that if they were to die during the production of a film, they would support a recast. They would support having their their portrayal of that character finished in some form or fashion. But the audience or people seem to be more more sensitive to that. The The political establishment, if you want to call it that, seems to be more sensitive to that. So I feel like they did right by Vic because most of his stuff is in there. They pretty much shot everything. Yeah, they right? used, as far as I can tell, everything that they filmed up right. until the accident. I feel like um, there might be sensitive people um, that are, you know, you shouldn't even have that in there. Well, it's the kids. Well, never mind you know, sensitive kind of people. Stuff. I'm asking you, though. Like, what do you think? Well, if you're asking me from a purely business perspective, yes. The film is relatively short. I don't know what they would have done if they'd cut it. Maybe just come up with something else. Well, I think the only alternative would have been perhaps to shoot a different ending, just take the helicopter portion out completely. Well, they did. I mean, they, they shuffled it around because he's jumping through time. So luckily, it worked out in the edit. I will say that, um, you know, this is this came from an era where there wasn't the internet, you know, Twitter. There wasn't all these ways to get that word out very quickly. When I saw the film, granted, I was only a child, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that for several years that that had happened during that movie. To mm-hmm. me, it was just a cool movie on HBO that I got to watch right. and I enjoyed it. And I think it was that same way for my parents. When people go to court for anything, the idea is that a jury of your peers decides if you are guilty or not. And if you are guilty, you go to jail and you pay your dues to society. So even if you did do something, once you're released, should we still hold that against you because you paid your dues? And if you're found innocent, technically, the law, the courts said he's not guilty. At what point do we stop somebody from having a career because of something like this? And what I mean by that is John Landis going to the criminal court and going to civil court, this went on for almost 10 full years. In the meantime, he made, as we'll discuss, Three Amigos, Spies Like Us, Coming to America, a movie that grossed $350 million. It was the third biggest movie in the world the year it came out. And on one hand, if you're arrested and you're found not guilty, you definitely shouldn't be punished. So should he have been able to continue to make films? Should we hold that against him and stop him from working? All of this happened before cancel culture and before, again, the internet. So I don't think a lot of people knew that he, that, that had even happened when they saw his other films. Yeah, but then never mind what society would say. I'm asking you. I would say that for me, it's all about redemption. It's all about did they take responsibility and ownership for what they did? Are they truly sorry? Have they done things in their life? You mentioned responsibility, but it was still being determined if he was responsible. Should the person potentially responsible for somebody's death make eight, nine, ten million million making another movie while they wait to find out if they're responsible in the eyes of the law? Legally, yes, because they haven't been found guilty yet. And in this country, okay. you're innocent until proven guilty. However, I will say that if I was aware of what happened on Twilight Zone and I and he had other movies coming out in the years preceding the, the final settlement, I would be uncomfortable going to see those movies. Um, so that would, would have been a problem for me. But in terms of allowing him to work legally, yes. If it's something that something that I have a moral stance against, Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I might feel a little bit, have a little bit of a pit in my stomach when I go to see that film. But ultimately, if it's a good movie, I want to see that piece of art. And ultimately, the courts did find him not guilty. And even if he had been, though, I wonder what returning to film would have been like. One example is the director of Jeepers Creepers, Victor Salva. He went to jail for, how do I say this in a podcast that doesn't have a little E for explicit next to it? Victor Salva was inappropriate with a young boy an actor on one of his movies. He had a physical relationship and I believe the actor was 12. He did go to jail. He was arrested. He served his time. And then he came back and he did a Disney movie called Powder. And that pissed off a lot of people, but there wasn't an internet. There wasn't a Twitter yet. So outrage was relatively limited. And then he did Jeepers Creepers, which was a huge hit. And then his career sort of died off since then because coincidentally, social media was birthed around the time of Jeepers Creepers 2. And maybe that's why he hasn't done much else. So even though Landis was found not guilty in the Vic Morrow incident, even if he had been, kind of like with Victor Salva, there's the idea of 
paying your dues. Should someone who was arrested, went to jail, did their time, should they be allowed to come back and continue their trade? It all depends on how redeemed they were. Did they did they take well, any time? Whose judgment is that, though? Who gets to decide how redeemed a person is? That's the, what, Through their actions, people can make that own conclusion by themselves. And I think we've seen examples of that for everything over time, right? We've seen people who have done things that have been canceled and never come back from it. And we've seen people who have done things, been canceled, and they have come back from it. When you bring in, um, you know, the the minor and that kind of stuff, that to me, that well, sets off a moral violation. I think that is difficult to come back from, no matter what. Right. Um, well, you may serve your time, but you're not, you're not going to. There's no way to fulfill that kind of time in the eyes of the general public, in my right. opinion. Right. And I'm not going to compare the deaths of three people to the molestation of one person because that's well gross. We're not going to compare those things. Right. But I think the well, difference, one had malice intent, the other one... You beat me by one second. Yeah. That's the difference. One is a person in charge of a situation that went wrong, and the other is somebody directly doing something. To somebody else. Right. Correct. Yeah. A lot of people, though, don't think that John Landis should be allowed to have a career, and he kind of sabotaged his own career with a bunch of bad movies. We'll get to. There's a really great podcast called Blank Check, which I think I've mentioned on the show before. I love it. It's a movie show, kind of like us, but, you know, popular. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and... uh Whenever somebody says John Landis, the hosts go, F John Landis. Like they, they, they say it as a quick aside every time anyone mentions John Landis's name. Yeah, I don't think in, in hindsight through the John Landis stuff, I don't think that he really ever did earn redemption from that. Well, I he think his did. career would be around if his movies had done well. Yeah, yeah. People forgive success. Look at Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, but... Look up Tim Allen and Robert Downey Jr.'s criminal pasts. The only reason we're okay with it is because they were successful after. That's the only reason. Both of the examples you just gave, there was drugs involved, and that's a whole other sickness in and of itself. So well, true, but still. One could argue that they were not well when that happened. Yeah, but look at uh, who's that football player that killed the dogs. He came back and made a ton of money. People forgive with success, so who knows where things would have been if this had been a more modern incident. We are still going to go ahead and go over the rest of his filmography, and so the films we'll be discussing today are the Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House, Blues Brothers, Blues Brothers 2000, An American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Twilight Zone, the movie, Thriller, which is the Michael Jackson video, which is not a movie, but uh, we're going to talk about it, Into the Night, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, Coming to America, Oscar, Innocent Blood, Beverly Hills Cop 3, and The Stupids. And there are a few more films he did after that, but they all suck. They barely came out. Who cares? Okay. For me, one of the more obvious ones to cross off is The Stupids. It's his last big theatrical release. It has Tom Arnold... Really, really stupid people cause really lucky accidents. It's kind of amusing, actually, but it should have been 20 minutes long, not a whole movie. As an example, there's a part in the movie where these hitmen are trying to kill the stupids. The stupids is the name of a family. It's their last name. And the hitman fires a, a crossbow at them, and it misses and hits a telephone pole. And the little kid is like, oh, an arrow. And he pulls on it, and the entire telephone pole falls and hits the two guys trying to kill them. But it can be grating. It's just, okay, how dumb can this really be kind of humor? Tom Arnold, other than... Uh, True Lies. True Lies. I, I can't think of any film that he's been in that's been really good, to be honest. He's a fun person to listen to um, when you know when he does guest appearances on podcasts or radio. He's, he's a funny guy, but... I think he was one of those comedians where they didn't know what to do with him because he became famous for who he married. He married Roseanne. And like with any comedian who comes off of SNL or anything else, they don't all find a niche. That's true. So you never really know. You never really know. And The Stupids was a lead role. I wouldn't say no to it, but yeah, it's it really bad. Yeah, The Stupids is is going to be one that's off my list immediately. I just, it was one of the worst movies that I've seen from that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely grating. I'm going to cross off Beverly Hills Cop 3. We briefly talked about it in the episode with Tara about vampire movies because Vampire in Brooklyn came out around the same time. And there was this weird, well, allegedly, reportedly, whatever, there was a weird time in the 90s where Eddie Murphy didn't want to be funny up until The Nutty Professor, which was a huge hit. Beverly Hills Cop 3, they didn't know what they were making because he didn't want to be funny, even though it's a comedy action franchise. And he was rejecting being the funny Eddie Murphy on the set. He didn't want to do ad-libs. He didn't want to crack jokes. Right. But there were some funny moments in that film. Um, well, it's still written to be a comedy. You know, the theme park or Disney World or whatever world they were it's at. It's basically a crime comedy thriller at Disneyland. 
that was a unique premise because I mean, who, who who doesn't like Disneyland, right? Who doesn't right. like Eddie Murphy at least back then? Yeah, but I don't want to see a shootout at Disneyland. They filmed it at uh, one of the Six Flags, though, so it's not really Disneyland, right. but it's it's called like not Wally World. That's from, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's from right. vacation, uh, similar to Wally World, like Wonder World or something like that. Eh. Yeah, I'm gonna leave it. I, I again, it's probably not going to be on my final list, but I'm gonna leave it on there for now. Really? Yeah, Beverly Hills Cop is awesome. That's my jam. Yeah, part one. Huh, whatever. All right. Let's talk about a good one. I am probably not keeping it, but John Landis's first movie, the Kentucky Fried movie, is hilarious. It's a sketch film, which other than, maybe you can think of one, Sean, other than the Monty Python films like, and now for something completely different, or The Meaning of Life, I can't really think of any other sketch films where it's like Saturday Night Live, the movie, or In Living Color, the movie. There's no main character. There's no plot. It's just two to five minute comedy sketches, and they made a movie out of it. Kentucky Fried Movie, to me, um, is a classic. Yeah, it's uh, very funny. <laughs> it is funny. I the, the one scene that sticks out to me the most is the feel-around movie. Oh, I was going to talk about that. <laughs> feel-a-rama. Feel-a-rama, that's what it was. There's yeah. a couple gags there. It's really funny. It's so dumb, but it's funny. Yeah, the whole thing is dumb. It's full yeah. of bits like that. The longest one is uh, A Fistful of Yen, which is yeah. like 30 minutes of the movie. It's like a very big chunk. Right. That one is a spoof of Bruce Lee movies. There's a recurring gag through the different skits where somebody gets shot in the stomach with an arrow. It's so random. It's hilarious. There's a bit of trivia on IMDb, whether it's true or not, but it's on there. One of the working titles for the film was Free Popcorn, because back in the day, movie theaters had marquees on the side of the building, so you could see all the movies playing there when you drive by or walk by. And so the idea is all these movie theaters would have on their sign, free popcorn. (laughs) Ah, that's clever. And there was some pushback. So they ended up not doing that. I like Kentucky Fried Movie, but there are a few classics on here. So I am not keeping it. It is one of those movies I would hang on to and say maybe, but the reality is, is no, I'm I'm just not. Yeah, same here. I I would definitely classify it as one of the better films on the list for sure. But uh, I can tell you it's not going to be in my top three. Let's go ahead and double back to Twilight Zone. We did talk about the Vic Morrow sequence, but as a film in itself, I don't love it. It was one of those HBO staples, like you mentioned, where I watched it a bunch as a kid. And the George Miller sequence, which is a remake of the episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, where in the movie, John Lithgow sees a gremlin on the plane, and he's screaming and freaking out that this gremlin is tearing the plane apart and no one believes him. That is shot so well. It's so good. The rest of the movie, eh, Spielberg's sequence is atrocious. It's awful. It's the worst thing Spielberg has ever made. And I've seen 1941. (laughs) I've seen always the kick the can sequence that Spielberg made where it's an old folks home. And for one night, they all turn into 10 year olds and they play kick the can. It's such Peter Pan schmaltz nonsense. I hate it so much. And then Joe Dante, he has actually a really good sequence where there's a child at a house and this child has superpowers and can get whatever he wants. And so everyone in the household, so his grandpa, his mom, his sister, they're all afraid to tell this kid no, because he will make monsters pop out of jack-in-the-boxes or turn the voice of Bart Simpson into a mouthless cartoon character or whatever. That sequence is scary and creepy and weird. But those two, so the the Joe Dante sequence and the George Miller one, those are both worth watching. But the other two, the the John Landis one, which to me is just sort of tainted and in a sense incomplete, and also the Spielberg one, I just don't like. And so overall, I cannot really even pretend to keep the Twilight Zone movie, unfortunately. Yeah, for me, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to say the Twilight Zone movie. Um, it's a staple of my childhood, and uh, that for me is 100 percent on my list of my final three. But why? It's a good movie. It, it, it um, you know, the other I do agree that there are some in, in really any anthology film you're gonna have certain Antholo- pieces that yeah. are better than others. Anthology films are tough to pull off. Right. Even Creepshow is great and has the same sort of issues where maybe one sequence isn't as good as the next. Right completely agree but i feel like uh the sequence where he's on the airplane is fantastic do you remember who played him in the episode uh john lithgow no no in the episode because it was a remake of an um, original 50s uh, william episode. shatner it was it was a shatner yes yeah. yes I, I feel like that was a great a great segment and then also i did like the uh the vic morose and maybe it's because of what happened it makes it more eerie Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a certain darkness and, and kind of real-life grounded horror to that. We should probably point out to viewers, in case there are any uh, trigger warnings necessary, the Vic Morrow character is a racist bigot, and 
Vic Morrow playing this bigot, he goes back in time to where people are being persecuted, like the Jewish people in the Holocaust and and the Vietnamese people during the war. But as being a racist bigot, he says a lot of uncomfortable words. So be prepared. That, and I think there is a solace that one can take in it because he does get what he deserves. But that's the thing, though. I'd be willing to bet it's because they couldn't finish it completely. But in Twilight Zone in the show, because I love the old show, people learn their lesson. They're not just punished. And I don't get in that sequence that he learns his lesson. He just gets punished. He learns his lesson because he is punished and never... He never... Do you think that the people that he makes feel lower than they really are or ever get there? No, no. But as far as being Twilight Zone, I think that there's... Maybe there's a scene missing where he doesn't get the realization. It just ends with him being taken to a concentration camp. It could be. Um, Either way, I'm not thinking that deeply about it when I'm watching it. Okay. (laughs) Um, But I I feel like that was... uh, The list of movies I have in front of me, uh, that 100% was one of the best films for me. Then I will mention one of mine, The Blues Brothers, which I absolutely adore. And I know you have not seen that in three decades, probably, Sean. As far as money and hits and respect, it is one of the biggest movies in Landis's career. It made a ton of money. That is one of the movies that I can watch just over and over again. When I bought the 4K Blu-ray, I watched it twice in a row. I just started it again. I just love that movie so freaking much. I am crossing off 2000. Blues Brothers 2000 is... Even though it is one of my favorites, I do love that movie. It's bad. It's one of those movies that I have to admit is bad. It's filmed very poorly, very flatly. Weirdly, one of the only movies I've ever seen where you can recognize the same extras in different scenes over and over again. Wow. Now, Blues Brothers 2000 does have one of the most incredible car crashes I've ever seen in any movie, where a bunch of cops are chasing the Blues Brothers, and they crash, and the cop cars just keep slamming into each other, and it goes on for a minute and a half. And it is so remarkably stupidly hilarious when i saw in theaters with my friend aaron we were convulsing laughing like slamming back in our chairs laughing so hard i was crying that sequence alone is amazing but the movie is bad part one though it's so good and it was the first saturday night live movie too somebody once said that the budget for blues brothers part one was cocaine (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting yeah well apparently the script was like uh 600 rambling pages by dan Aykroyd. And they were able to just sort of magically cobble a film out of it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I I've never was able to get into it. I'm, I'm willing to give it another chance. I don't know what it was. I think it was just, I don't know. I think maybe when the, when the original hit, it was, I just wasn't into comedies at all mm-hmm. at that time, possibly. So I am now. Like I love a good comedy. But back then, it just didn't, it didn't do it for me. It has Carrie Fisher in it. You like Star yeah, Wars? that's true. That's true. But, and a lot uh, of good music. James Brown is in it. Spielberg is in it. He has a cameo. I didn't know that. The first one is great. I love it. And I'm keeping it, but I do wonder if maybe it kind of falls for you where Animal House falls for me, because I don't love Animal House. And I know it's one of those classics like Caddyshack, but I don't like Caddyshack either. I am crossing off Animal House, even though it's a classic, and maybe my sense of comedy is just not quite in line with it. It is It is from the 70s. Animal House came out in, I want to say, 78. Blues Brothers was 80. So not really any different. Same director. But with Animal House, it has a lot of funny scenes to talk about, kind of like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. But as a film, it's a little long, and I just don't really care. All the John Belushi parts are great. John Belushi is amazing. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I just don't laugh during Animal House. Didn't they change the actor's... And Blues Brothers to Blues Brothers 2000. It was Danny Aykroyd in both, but then... Well, John Belushi, Belushi died. Yeah, right. So John Belushi Goodman... was in one of them. John Goodman plays a different character. In the film, his brother has died. So John Belushi's character has died in the story of Blues Brothers 2000. Okay. Uh, I'm crossing both Blues Brothers off my, my well, sheet. Well, Again, uh, ask me again in 10 years and I may change on that. But I'm crossing those off. Uh, Animal House, I'm going to leave on right now because okay. I feel like I mean, it, it is cat- a classic. It catapulted a lot of, uh, showed us a different side and or catapulted careers of a lot of very yeah, talented Yeah, Kevin Bacon, people. Tim Matheson, Tom Hulse. Is it Hulse, the guy who played Amadeus? I believe so, And he yes. was Hunchback in the mm-hmm. Disney's Hunchback. Now, Sean, I'm going to ask you, and you probably know because you're the right age for this, but the full title is National Lampoon's Animal House. Kind that of is like, correct. Well, yes, I know it's correct. Oh, my oh. God. Kind of like National Lampoon's Vacation or National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Do you know what National Lampoon's is? It's a magazine, right? All right, you do know. Okay. I feel like so many people watch Christmas Vacation without even realizing why that moniker is on there. National Lampoon was a satire comedy magazine, kind of like Mad Magazine. 
And they got into film production before they just started licensing the name out to whatever Corey Feldman movie wanted to slap it on a box. So you're not crossing off Animal House yet? I am not. No way. Uh -uh. One easy one to cross off is Into the Night. It's a forgotten film. It has Jeff Goldblum, came out in the mid-80s, Michelle Pfeiffer, a whole bunch of cameos, actually. There's a lot of directors that show up in that movie, like David Cronenberg and Richard Franklin. I read that these directors show up in the film as support for his career after Twilight Zone. The movie reminds me a lot of the Martin Lawrence comedy, Nothing to Lose, or Martin Scorsese's After Hours, which came out the same year. It's one wacky night in the life of a kind of loser, uppity, depressed man. (laughs) Jeff Goldblum comes home, finds his wife cheating on him. And he drives off into the Los Angeles night and he meets Michelle Pfeiffer who has stolen jewelry or diamonds from the Shah of Iran. And I'm sure these Iranian people are portrayed very sensitively in the 80s, right? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like the beginning of Back to the Future. Where did Doc Brown get the plutonium again? Libyans. Yes, exactly. But either way, it's just one of those, you know, a bored business type guy learns to have an adventure and get out of his comfort zone in one crazy night. It's okay. It's fine. It's actually pretty watchable. On IMDb, it has a 6.6. Anything over 6.2 on IMDb is usually at least pretty okay. It's decent. Um, it reminded me a lot of like falling down. Without the anger. Yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Make no mistake. This is a comedy. Into the Night is a comedy. Falling Down is, well, Falling Down is a dark comedy, but tonally not connected. Story-wise, yes. Yes, correct. A That's very long I- day or night in the life of somebody whose life is kind of out of control. Right. Exactly. With very different outcomes. Falling down is more Breaking Bad. Into the Night is more Griffin Dunn. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, that's a good comparison. But it's a forgotten film, kind of like, I don't know, Vibes. Goldblum did a movie with Cindy Lauper called Vibes. Where I was not aware of that. I haven't seen that one. One of them plays a psychic. I forget which one. But either way, uh, Into the Night, I wish I could go to bat for it. I wish I could say that's one of those forgotten films that everyone needs to check out. But it's, it's, it's good. And that's it. You know, not enough of a reason to keep it. Yeah, I would go ahead and, and cross off into the night. It's a good movie. I agree. It's one of those weird movies where you wonder how nobody remembers it. It has famous people. And especially lately, we have had this sort of rediscovery of the 80s, right? But it's an unknown movie. Right. That's very true. We'll briefly touch on Michael Jackson's thriller. It's not a movie, so we're not keeping it. It's not going to survive. But it was one of the music videos that completely changed the music video landscape. We don't really have music television anymore. You know, MTV used to just be music videos and then it became reality TV. Thriller was a short film, essentially. There is a story to it. There's special effects. It's scary. It's wildly creative. It's 17 minutes, 12 minutes. It's pretty lengthy. And it was the music video that proved that music videos can be a storytelling device. It paved the way to more creative voices in music video. It showed that the format that this media style could be used for more than just showing somebody on a stage playing guitar. There were creative videos beforehand, like the Buggles and the video killed the radio star, but it was still essentially just showing people performing in different environments in one way or the other. Michael Jackson's thriller that John Landis directed, it's a complete story. It's a film. And for that, it is completely noteworthy. Crossing it off, but if you have not seen it, if there's some possibility that you have not seen Michael Jackson's thriller, that's probably the most important thing that John Landis ever made. I remember uh, Thriller, seeing that as a kid, it was the makeup and the creature effects, you know, how they how they did that was mm-hmm. just amazing. Like, it was synonymous with Halloween for me. Like, not Halloween the movie, but the holiday. Mm-hmm. It was something that you have to watch around Halloween every year because it really was very well done. It's memorable. And also, too, one thing that sort of long-term potentially had a, a grand impact was that it was sold as a hour-long package with the making of behind the scenes showing Michael Jackson getting the makeup on, the rehearsal, and they sold it as a package. So if MTV wanted to play this new Michael Jackson video and Michael Jackson being the biggest musical star in the world, they had to buy the whole thing. And so on MTV, you would see a whole presentation of the actual video and then the making of. Nowadays, you get the special features. Making ofs are just so normal. And it could be argued that Charles Band's Full Moon with their straight-to-video series like Puppet Master, they were the first ones to really do video magazines as behind-the-scenes featurettes. But before that was Thriller. And it was sort of the one-two punch that led to special features that we know now because there was no such thing. Special features wasn't a term. It's very interesting. So it kind of ushered in a whole new marketing gimmick. Yeah, well, (laughs) whether directly or not, it created what we take for granted now. What's normal to us now started with Thriller and and then Full Moon. 
Yeah, that is true. I mean, I would buy a Blu-ray or a a DVD based on the special features sometimes. Spies Like Us, I'm going to cross off. I know you like it, Sean. You've told me before that you like it. It's one of those movies that even as a kid, I didn't think it was very funny. Once they go on their adventure, it's Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase. It's an 80s comedy. Once they go on their adventure, I just really don't care. But all of their training, because they're training to be spies, they're low-level CIA people who get pulled out of basements or whatever to go on this adventure as essentially a suicide squad. They're lackeys. They are meant to be a distraction for the real spies. All of their training stuff where they are failing is really funny. That stuff's funny. But once they go on their mission, I just really don't care. I thought it was hilarious. I'm a huge <laughs> uh, Chevy Chase of the 80s fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fletch you know, is the best. Fletch, Fletch Lives, uh, Vacation, the Vacation movies. What about Nothing But Trouble? I Actually, I like Nothing But Trouble. Oh my. Okay, never mind. <laughs> We're not going to get into that. But Spies, Spies like, us. like Us, to me, um, the scene that sticks out in that one is the one where they're, so Chevy Chase and, and, and Dan Aykroyd are pretending as though they're surgeons and they have to <laughs> okay. do this operation on a guy. He's looking up to the to the team of surgeons watching him because they're supposed to be these legendary surgeons and everybody wants to watch him perform a surgery. He kind of looks at him and see if, to see the, read their facial expressions to see if he has the knife in the right place. The the physical um, comedy in it, the ability to make you laugh without a punchline, mm-hmm. to me is is masterful in that one. And maybe that's more as a result of the performers than the director, perhaps. I'm willing to, to accept that possibly. But for me, it's it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. I'm going to- Really? Def- yeah, I'm leaving that on the list. Okay. My favorite scene is when Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase are taking a test. They're at the, I guess, I don't know if it's Langley, but they're at the center <laughs> yeah, where they're training. I know what you're and, talking about. And Frank Oz is playing the instructor or whatnot. And he is just watching them as they cheat, especially Chevy Chase. Right. He has an eye patch where he pulls the eye patch forward and there's writing on the inside. <laughs> yes. Or there's a long strip of paper in his mouth with little writing on it. <laughs> and Frank Oz is just watching him cheat. And it's so stupidly funny. It also defined the Cold War. It was a film that wasn't afraid to approach the whole Cold War with with a, with a sense of comedy. Cause, yeah, because it was still the 80s. Yep, back then, you actually, we actually thought there might be a nuclear war with Russia, between yeah. the U.S. and Russia. Well, Red but, Dawn. Red Dawn, which absolutely. Is much better than Spies Like Us. They took that, they faced that head head on and made made us laugh about it, which I think is is brilliant. I am crossing off Spies Like Us, sorry. I'll cross off two real quick because the other ones that are left are all really good. We saved the best for last, in my opinion, at least. But the two I'm going to cross off really quickly are Oscar and Innocent Blood. Oscar is the screwball madcap comedy starring Stallone where he plays a mobster in the 30s. And it's made like those old 30s comedies, kind of. Right. And it has a huge, great cast like Marissa Tomei, who is very funny in it. And Tim Curry and Vincent Spano and Kurtwood Smith. The gag in the movie is that it's called Oscar. One lie about this guy named Oscar that you never meet sort of causes the whole event to unravel. It's one day in the life of this mobster who's trying to go straight, and his daughter lies about getting pregnant by the chauffeur. One of those wacky comedies, you know? I say that with a with a tone. I recognize my tone when I say that. It has funny parts. A lot of people love Oscar now. It's sort of been reappreciated. I think Stallone is miscast. I was just going to say that. I love Stallone. I love his... I know, do. A lot of the movies he's in. Oh, yeah. Rocky. You know, Cobra, even, I would <laughs> say, is a great film. But it didn't feel right. I don't know that it's the role. Maybe it's the idea of, of a screwball comedy. He's just not funny. That, that, I hate to say it. He's just not funny in it. The rest of the cast is good. The rest of the cast lifts him up. And it is amusing. I do like Oscar. I own it. Yeah, it brings back an interesting dynamic that you brought up earlier in the show where you talked about um, comedians, comedic actors. Oh, how comedians struggle sometimes to find a, a a niche was the word that I used. Yeah, they want to become, they want to enter into more serious roles. So you're talking about Eddie Murphy and his whole mm-hmm. spin that he had. Or Robin Williams or Adam Sandler. The same one that Adam Sandler's doing yeah. today. The bottom line is the reason that they want that, and you don't see a lot of actors like Stallone striving to get into comedies as much. You do see it, but not as much because they want that notoriety. They want that mm-hmm. those awards, and it's hard to get those in comics. Well, the less cynical way of, of putting that, if I can put words in your mouth, is that nobody wants to do the same thing forever. And while Adam Sandler might like being funny, I don't think he always wants to do that. It may not necessarily be chasing an Oscar. It may just be, I want to do something else. Stallone probably doesn't want to shoot people all the time. Actors want variety. They aren't really these people. And so even if they have a natural instinct to be funny... Maybe they want to do something else. And you see that with horror too. And we talked about this in another episode recently where Jordan Peele did sketch comedy, first movie, horror. John Krasinski, The Office, first movie, horror. 
people want to do something different. You don't want the same thing all the time. We look at actors as having these great careers that we're jealous of. Seeing it from their side, they don't maybe necessarily want to do the same thing all the time either, right? Yeah, that's very true. Like even in my own film career, I kind of feel like I've been thrust into producing films that I'm not as into. Uh, I mean, if I had it my way, I would want to do horror, sci-fi. So I can see how they would come in and, and be attached to something that they had success on. And then they can make money off of that. So they continue to do it, but it's not really where their passion is. So how do we know that, for example, Adam Sandler isn't secretly a, a really huge fan of, of dark comedy or, or punch drunk love? You know, that's yeah. the kind of thing he wants to do. I think Jordan Peele, it's easy to say that, yeah, he might have hit success in comedy, but he really loves horror. Yeah. You know, that's obvious. Well, and also too, Danny McBride wrote the new Halloween movies. That's right. And even outside of acting in different film genres, you have people like 50 Cent who invested in Powerade or vitamin water or whatever. So even if famous people have these careers, that doesn't mean that it's all they want to do, you know? And so right. Stallone probably wanted to try comedy. Maybe he did. And there's a very funny story about Stop or My Mom Will Shoot where, and this is confirmed by them. So this isn't some internet rumor. This was actually stated out loud by the people involved. Schwarzenegger was first given the script for Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. And he knew that Stallone was so competitive that he acted like he wanted to do it so that Stallone would sign first. So he tricked Stallone into doing it, knowing that the script was awful. He purposefully set up Stallone to make that movie. That is, oh <laughs> man, that is a... I mean, they're friends, so they blow. can do that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's hilarious. funny. I'm crossing off Oscar. Actually, here's a good way to describe it. If you've seen the movie Clue, and I love the movie Clue, the end where all the characters are running from room to room Imagine a whole movie of that. Yeah. That is Oscar. That's a good analogy. Clue is great, by the way. Oh, I love Clue. I'm going to cross Oscar off my Yeah, list. me too. And then the other one is Innocent Blood. Now, I have a weird soft spot for Innocent Blood. I don't love it, but it's one of those movies that I see so much potential in it that I wish it was better. I watch it and I just sort of feel disappointed because there's a lot of cool ideas in it. It's about a French vampire who feeds on a mob boss and he ends up being an evil vampire and creating a bunch of mobster vampires. And it's a comedy though. My problem with the movie that so completely distracts me from it is that when she turns into a vampire, so she is a normal looking person and then she tilts her head back, her eyes are glowing. And when she opens her mouth all the way, it makes a large cat roaring sound like a panther or a leopard going rah, rah, rah. And her mouth is just wide open and still, but you hear the sound of this cat <laughs> coming out of her. And it's so bad that it completely takes away. There's no comedy. There's no visceral thrills. There's no horror. It's just that stupid sound. <laughs> and it ruins it. There is a lot to like here. She ends up meeting one of the henchmen for the mobster that she killed, who is an undercover cop. And they sort of team up while this weird underworld vampirism thing is happening. And I really want to love it. I just so much want to love this movie. And I don't. That stupid cat sound, every single time she turns into a vampire, is just terribly distracting. It's it's awful. It's ruinous. Maybe they were reusing footage from Cat People. Okay, well, Cat People is awesome. <laughs> so those that don't know, Cat People is about a woman who is afraid to have sex because she thinks that she'll turn into a werecat. It's a moody, dramatic, sexual, dark film. There's a 40s version and an 80s version, and they're both great. I recommend both versions of Cat People. This is not that. This is definitely not that. Yeah. But there's a lot to like. Man, I wish, oh, I just wish it was better because everything else in that movie is right. They have Don Rickles in it for crying out loud. Yeah, Innocent Blood, I'm going to I'm gonna cross off my list. Again, I think it was a good film, but it's too quirky for me. I, I just, it didn't work. So there are only four left that we haven't talked about. And to me, these four are all contenders because they're all pretty great. An American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Three Amigos, and Coming to America. Sean. I'm going to put you on the spot. Which one of those four would you cross off first? I would actually cross off Three Amigos first, believe it or not. Uh, surprisingly, I actually agree, which oh, is wow. sad. I grew up with that movie, Chevy Chase. is 80s Chevy Chase. Weirdly, Martin Short was the person who wasn't very famous. I read his autobiography, and when he got that role, it was a career changer for him because he was really only known for SCTV. And so for him to get this role with Chevy Chase and Steve Martin was essentially a career launch pad for him. It's weird to think I about can now. I see that. Yeah. He's so known now. He's had right. 30 years of comedy. And it's weird to think that at one point in time, he had to be given a big break. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, his performance in Father of the Bride 
hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Three Migos has one of those tropes that I hate, even though it's the entire premise of the movie. So I guess that's my problem. But the accidental spy essentially is what it is. They play these three silent film actors who get hired by a small town in Mexico to be saviors because the people saw the movie thinking it was real because this was the what 1920s is the early days of cinema. Right. And so they arrive. And of course, it's a real dangerous situation. And it's funny. I'm not complaining about Three Amigos at all. There's some really hilarious parts. Like there's a part where Chevy Chase accidentally shoots an invisible man. Steve Martin and Martin Short sing My Little Buttercup to a saloon full of very tough people. It's funny. It's a funny movie. I don't know. It's weird because we have to cross something off. Other than the trope, I don't know that there's anything bad for me to say. Like, I don't have a reason to cross it off. It's just I have other movies to choose, you know? Same here. Yeah, I think it was a good film. It's memorable. It's another one of those HBO staples, if you will. I saw it. Actually, you know what? Oh, man, I'm surprised I remember this. I saw Three Amigos in theaters with Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, wow. At Valley West Mall, which (laughs) is the namesake of the show. That's funny. I remember when they came out. Yeah, I think it was a good film. I just, for me, it it didn't have the staying power. Like I didn't, it wasn't one of those ones that when it was playing, I'd leave the channel on. I'd still be looking for something different. So that tells me that I must have not been as interested in it because certainly if Spies Like Us was on, that, that I'm not changing the dip switch yeah. on the old cable box. One thing I've said before, and we'll cross this bridge with another episode later, but humor is so subjective. In my opinion, and again, this might be unfair to say, but you can absolutely love a horror movie that's not scary. To love a comedy that's not funny? I don't know. That's that's sort of a, an empty space for me. It feels unfair to say that because a movie is a movie, right? But right. a comedy is supposed to make you laugh. I don't know what it is. I can't put a finger mm-hmm. on it. But there is something about that type of comedy that I thought was funny, but it wasn't as funny mm-hmm. as... Like, Coming to America was hilarious as well. You know, yeah, we'll that, get to that in a second yeah. here. It, it lacks something, and I can't really put a finger on it. It's nonspecific, but maybe it has to do with drive. Like, that feeling of wanting to revisit it. I mentioned Blues Brothers earlier where I could watch it twice in a row. Right now, I want to watch Blues Brothers. <laughs> right now, we're talking about it. Um, I don't know when the last time I ever had the feeling to rewatch Three Amigos. I've rewatched Back to School. I've rewatched Fletch. But I haven't had the inkling to rewatch Three Amigos in who knows how long. And again, we're not saying it's bad. It's just between it and what's left, uh, I, I guess that one has to go. Right. You mentioned Coming to America. We're not going to talk about the sequel because it's awful, almost as bad as Jurassic World Dominion. Boom, shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) Which was almost as bad as Rise of Skywalker. Oh, come at me, Star Wars fans. (laughs) The original Coming to America, oh boy, howdy. It's such a fun movie. My only issue, and it's a very, very small issue with Coming to America, is that the humor is very obvious. It helps that it's really funny, but the joke is that he's a fish out of water because Prince Akeem is from Africa. He comes to Queens to find a bride the normal way. He doesn't want an arranged marriage. And nearly every single joke is he's so positive and he doesn't understand. And it's the same joke for 90 minutes. And I could see that being kind of a problem in other movies. Luckily, Coming to America has a lot of really great gags in it. But the joke over and over again is he's so happy and he doesn't understand America. The makeup on Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall because they play multiple characters. Right, in the barbershop. In the barbershop and a few other scenes as well is mind-blowing. Nowadays, sure, we know what you can do and it's not as surprising. But back then, I remember watching that as a kid and just being blown away. Yeah, I I would even go so far as to say the first time I watched it, granted I was a kid, I would say that I even watched the film the first time again as a kid and actually thought that they were different people. I don't think I knew that it was Eddie Murphy replaying Mm -hmm. and Arsenio Hall replaying these roles. I figured that out, obviously, as I got a little older and could watch with more of a a critical eye, but I don't think I really even noticed it, to be honest, when I was a kid and watched it. And granted, too, we've talked about this before in other episodes, when it comes to R-rated movies and children, every kid is different and parents should decide what their kids can and can't watch. But Coming to America, in my opinion, is a great entry-level R-rated movie for a kid. Because the rating system isn't law. They're not saying R-rated movies can't be seen. It says no one under 17 should watch this movie without an adult. It doesn't say they can't watch it. It says you can't watch it without your parent around, you know. And coming to America, sure, there's a couple bad words and there are some uh, naked women early in the film. If you want to show an R-rated comedy, that's actually pretty okay, pretty safe. I think it's a great place to start because like Terminator 2 or Rambo, or Starship Troopers, you know? There are movies that, even though they're R-rated, because, yeah, there's a little bit of this or that, you know, we all grew up with this stuff. It's fine. We had Rambo toys. We had Terminator toys. It's fine. Right. There are plenty of kids who've seen Deadpool. 
if you want to watch a good comedy and you want to give them an opportunity to test the waters with an R-rated comedy, I think it's perfectly fine. I think it's a great film to start with. So we're about to talk about Trading Places, but the two bad guys, the two older fellows in Trading Places cameo in Coming to America. There's a part where Prince Akeem, Eddie Murphy, is walking along with his love interest and he sees two homeless guys and gives them a bag full of money. And it's the same two actors playing the Duke brothers from Trading Places. And oh, op- I didn't know that. Yeah. no, they, well, funny. They open up the bag and there's a bunch of money in there. And, and one of them says, Mortimer, we're back in business. Oh, yeah. How funny. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was only four years after Trading it's Places. It's funny because Eddie years. Murphy is in both films mm-hmm. yeah. and he's playing two different characters. So yeah. they kind of broke the fourth wall there a little bit. Oh, yeah. I love Trading Places so much. So yeah, much. Yeah. Trading Places was awesome. Just to suddenly become rich. Everybody mm-hmm. has that fantasy at some level, right? In their mind. So- to see it happen to somebody else who was on the lowest of the low and then how they react to that was really cool. I, that was one of my all-time favorites as well. I, I'd say I probably, again, Spies Like Us does edge that out a little bit, mm-hmm. but it definitely is, is is up there for me as well. I rewatched Trading Places recently and it still holds up. It's still funny. There is a sequence at the end with a gorilla and it's clearly a terrible gorilla suit, but because it's yes. a comedy, they just don't care. <laughs> it, it does it not matter. It just goes. It yeah. doesn't matter. But the movie, if you haven't seen it, it's about Eddie Murphy as a homeless guy and Dan Aykroyd as this uppity rich guy, Louis Winthorpe III. And the older Duke brothers make a wager that they can turn Eddie Murphy into, essentially into Louis and that he could run their company. Right. They ruin Dan Aykroyd's life and he ends up being taken in by a prostitute played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And they sort of realize what's going on and eventually team up. And it's just hilarious these two working together to get revenge on the duke brothers like if you want to watch a short film within a film in and of itself start trading places on the train <laughs> they get on the train just watch that whole how that whole yeah. thing plays out you got the monkey in there you got the you got the whole thing it is it's hilarious man it's a good yeah. pick me up if you ever have a day where you're feeling down just watch that train sequence yeah although dan Aykroyd is uh painted another color <laughs> in that scene oh yeah that's right yeah that's right it's the 80s it's a funny movie. It's so incredibly funny. It's Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy at the top of their game. Yeah. And it's Jamie Lee Curtis, essentially right at the early start of her career. This was a full five years after Halloween, and she had kind of been stuck being a scream queen. This was her breakout into normal filmmaking. Right. And she's a fish called Wanda. We can start naming Jamie Lee Curtis movies. Christmas with the Cranks, baby. I love that one. Did you know John Grisham wrote that? Christmas I with the Cranks? I did not know that. Yeah. Uh-uh. Uh, Trading Places is absolutely surviving for me. Well, I am going to reluctantly cross off Coming to America. Um, okay. And then I am... Well, you love an American Werewolf in London. Like, I know yeah, you Yeah, American Werewolf in London. See, I'm, a, again, like I said, a horror sci-fi, mm-hmm. um, true crime kind of guy. So it's going to be... I will give a spoiler that there will be a comedy on my list, but well, only one. Giving out the knowledge that only there will only be one comedy, I've already disclosed that Spies Like Us is my favorite comedy of all time. So obviously... I'm going to have to reluctantly cross off Trading Places as well. Mm. Although I do love that movie. I would not agree with keeping Spies Like Us over Trading Places because you're wrong. (laughs) That would leave us with Animal House, leave me with Animal House, American Werewolf in London, Twilight Zone the movie, Spies Like Us, and Beverly Hills Cop 3. Well, Beverly Hills Cop 3, come on. Beverly Hills Cop 3 is not fully a comedy. No, I know, but seriously, you're not going to keep Beverly Hills Cop 3 and not Trading Places? Come on. That's nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. Beverly Hills, I think it's just the whole idea that it's a theme park. I love that angle. Oh, but it's, oh man, it's so bad. Just like I like Child's Play All right, 3, well, let's get back factor. to the werewolf. But oh, I will oh. say Beverly Hills Cop 3 is not going to be on my final list. Okay, that good. true. Good. Cross it off. Yes. And I do agree with you. I, I was talking over you, but the end sequence of Child's Play 2 in the factory is cool. Didn't we talk about Child's Play once? <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. Okay, we did an episode we about did. that. Okay. An American Werewolf in London is noteworthy because the transformation scene. Yes. It's incredible. Even now, it's an incredible sequence, but back then, we had never seen anything like it. You see step-by-step a person changing into a wolf, and it is just shocking. It's amazing. It was one of the finer parts of horror cinematic history. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, we had seen a lot of cutaways and shadows dissolving on one layer on top of Mm -hmm. another. It really Um, showed what we were capable of. It ushered in really all of the horror special effects of the 80s. Once that movie came out, it was no longer acceptable to just do a shadow or a off-screen transformation. Yeah. It redefined the audience expectations and what changing into a monster mm-hmm. has to be. The other thing about An American Werewolf in London, though, and we're not talking about the horrible sequel that came out like 15 years American later. American Werewolf in Paris? Oh, God, it's so bad. But anyway, 
The other noteworthy thing is that An American Werewolf in London confused people when it came out. It wasn't a huge hit. It's one of those movies that we appreciated later, like The Thing. But the reason it confused people, though, is because it's a horror comedy, and there hadn't been really any true horror comedies. There were movies that were comedies with horror elements or horror movies with some humor, but a true blue horror comedy, there is a very fine line in tone, and the successful movies like Shaun of the Dead are the ones where they treat the horror seriously and the comedy is actually funny. And so when you watch American Werewolf in London, there are great jokes in it, but the horror is always scary. Yeah, that's true. And then you have like the zombie sequences where he sees his dead friend's ghost. Uh, Every time he comes back, he's rotting more and more. Right. And people didn't understand the humor. They had test screenings where people just didn't get it. And when it came out, people still just didn't get it. It's very difficult to pull off scary and funny, and it set the tone. An American Werewolf in London was the one that showed that you can make a film like this, and granted, it paid for it. Nowadays, of course, we love it. We look back, and it's great, you know? Right. He transforms. He runs around London. Cops shoot him in an alley, and that's it. It just ends. It's it's a very yeah, short movie. That is true. And it has some weird dream sequences that make no sense. He has these dreams of demon Nazi dogs shooting his family. Yeah, it was... It it's was. completely out of nowhere. It makes no sense. It makes no sense in the story or plot in any way. It almost feels like there was some filler possibly put in there. I have to decide between an American werewolf and coming to America. And it's actually not really a difficult decision. I'm crossing off coming to America. I like Eddie Murphy. I like that movie a lot. And I've already saved another Eddie Murphy movie. So that makes me feel less bad. But an American werewolf in London is so good. It's a classic for a reason. So I am crossing off coming to America. And that leaves me with three. I have four. Um, I am going to cross off Animal House as much as that pains Ooh. me. Do you have a reason? Animal House is a good example of a film that actually became worse with age, only in the sense that they've done so many movies with a similar premise, the frat okay. house. The, so it, it's a victim it, of all the copycats. Yeah. It, yeah. And it's when you get so many copycats, some of them turn out to be good because there's so many of them, and then it starts to It dilutes make the it, original. Yes. There are some elements of Animal House that have not aged well as far as sensitivities either. Oh, yeah. Um, and not quite to the extent of like Revenge of the Nerds, but there's right. still some stuff in there. Or Police Academy. To me, Animal House, the humor just doesn't line up for me. Maybe it's a little too 70s and not enough 80s for me, and that might just be when I was born. I don't know. But Yeah, that's a good way of putting yeah. it. That's, there definitely is an element of that in there, for sure. But then again, I didn't laugh in National Lampoon's Vacation, and I know that's a classic too. That's one of my all-time favorite comedies as I well. like Christmas Vacation, I loved all the vacations. I could I could rank them, but this isn't the show. <laughs> so, Sean, that does leave you with three then, right? It does. My final three are going to be American Werewolf in London, Spies Like Us, and Twilight Zone the movie. So you are keeping the one that took Vic Morrow. I am. As for me, now playing this week at Valley West Cinemas are Trading Places, An American Werewolf in London, and The Blues Brothers. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter at VWestCinemas or Instagram at ValleyWestCinemas underscore podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please visit Patreon.com slash podcast. And of course, please rate and review. That helps us a bunch. I'm your host, Aaron. I was joined today by Sean. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening.